Hello, folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find the common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory, and today we're both pretty excited because we're going to take a bit of a departure from the things that we typically cover here on the show. Uh, Like we said back in episode 31, there is so much more to life than politics, and every now and then we need a little breather, and we think you folks probably do too. I definitely need a breather. (laughs) Well, we actually had an outstanding idea for an episode submitted by one of our listeners, uh, actually a friend of the show as well, uh, Pedro, and he said, hey, I'd love to hear you guys do an episode about science, and that really gelled with us. Now, that's that's not to say that we will not touch on politics today. Trump, of course, rears his orange head in here today. But today's show is about cutting-edge science and technology and its implications and woo! <laughs> now, it doesn't hurt that we're both raging nerds either. I mean, I can remember sitting on your mom and dad's back porch, definitely not partaking of the devil's lettuce. Never. And talking endlessly about quantum dots and lasers that hit targets before they were fired. That's and crazy. Everything I, else. I actually remember that article. It was called <laughs> Stop Light. Yeah. And I think it was in Wired. And it was about freezing lasers in some kind of quantum field. Anyway, if, if I remember correctly, it's because they were trying to encrypt data onto the laser. And that's like they do that now. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, after a few beers, you, you might have heard me ramble about rotational forces approaching infinity, planetary orbits, the speed of light, and why Einstein might have missed something, despite having no actual knowledge about any of these things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we, we were definitely armchair physicists, and uh, but it's cool, man, because I mean, science science tends to raise like all the fun, important, mind-boggling questions anyway, and that's, you know, that's that's part of what we do on this show. We have discussions, we talk about you know, life, politics, and culture and other things. And why can't science be a part of that? That's so. right. So let's kick off the show by talking about uh, quantum computing. Oh, yeah, let's jump right in. Quantum computing is the next frontier of computing and one that we're plunging headlong into whether we're ready or not. Ready or not, <laughs> here I come. You can't, sorry. But the question is, what is it, right? So quantum computing is computing using quantum mechanical phenomena, such as superposition and entanglement and mm-hmm. whereas common digital computing requires that the data be encoded into binary digits or bits uh, each of which is always in one of two definite states which is a zero or a one uh, quantum computation uses quantum bits or qubits which can be in superpositions of states and by superpositions we're talking about you know good old quantum physics and simultaneous states in other words a qubit is both a one and a zero at the same time. Only that doesn't sound very productive or useful on its face. I mean, we represent data with zeros and ones, finite data. How do you store and retrieve data from a superposition? Well, quantum bits in superposition have the peculiar quality of collapsing into a one or zero when they are observed. Currently, we're using microwaves to probe a quantum bit and read its state on its collapse. So it's Schrodinger's windows, right? It's like there's a computer that's in my car trunk and it may or may not have the blue screen of death. Is that what you're telling me? Something a little bit like that. (laughs) No, but seriously, like I still don't get to how we're storing and retrieving meaningful data here. That's probably because you haven't studied quantum mechanics for 10 years. And I'm not going to pretend to understand the specifics 
But the short answer is that a quantum bit on its own isn't terribly special. Uh, what happens, though, when we begin entangling them uh, is we can create superpositions of many states at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then we use an algorithm like Grover's algorithm to clean up the wrong answers, and it leaves us with the correct one. So it's like it's like reversing the phase and and creating an interference pattern. And from that, we can determine which answers are likely to be right. We continue on with the process, continue on with the process until only one answer is left, and it's the right answer. So blood magic. is that, that That's is that, right. We're back to Santeria. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty much blood magic. <laughs> well, as, as, as hard as it may be for us to wrap our heads around you know years and years of foundational physics works, uh, we can still kind of take a look at what we might be able to do. And large-scale quantum computers would theoretically be able to solve certain problems much more quickly than any classical computers that use even the best currently known algorithm. That's right. There exists quantum algorithms such as Simon's algorithm that run faster than any possible probabilistic classical algorithm. So, you know, we were talking about high-speed internet one time on the show, and I asked you about the speed difference between fiber and what we have currently. So help me again here. What does that mean practically as far as speed? Well, I think it's important to point out here that, yes, uh, there are plenty of algorithms that will run infinitely faster on quantum hardware, but uh, those algorithms are designed specifically for quantum computing. There are places where quantum computing offers absolutely no advantage over classical computers, like you know, running your office software, mm-hmm. uh, PC games, at least as we currently write them. Yeah, uh, They wouldn't suddenly just run faster. It's not like... Uh, this untapped, you know, well of horsepower that we can suddenly turn on, uh, where we see interesting uses for the speed and, and the matter of quantum computing is when we're analyzing really complex systems like artificial intelligence, Uh uh, financial systems, Mm -hmm. physics modeling, which would come into PC games once we've kind of figured out how to model physics within the, the quantum world. Yeah. Um, and even analyzing weather patterns. Yeah. And I think I think they've already actually used what we do have for some light chemistry modeling mm-hmm. and stuff. But yeah, I did see uh, you know a scientist and he was talking about it and he said by no means you know uh, take the assumption that that the home PC is going to go bye bye and all of a sudden everybody's going to have quantum machines. At least as far as we know right now, with uh, with our understanding of what we think our capabilities might be, quantum machines will largely be things that you don't see. Or there'll be things that influence, you know, the terminal that you're working at. Right. But you never really see them. You know what I mean? So they kind of they kind of exist out there in the ether, computing, being ones and zeros and everything else all at once. But it, that's the thing, man, is like, it's so crazy. Like, we don't even know exactly what we're going to do with it yet. Um, it, it operates on rules of physics that we're still trying to grasp. And, and you have to bear in mind that in order for us to really see like what is capable with a machine that has those abilities, uh, we're going to have to figure out how to write software for it. And for that, we, we kind of need one of those machines. So we need the machine first. That's, that's true. Uh, but we actually already have built them on a, on a small scale. Now in much the same way that the first computers took up a whole room, Mm -hmm. uh, these quantum computers are, are pretty darn big. Uh, you know, IBM is cooling, these these quantum bits down to I think point zero 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 one five Kelvin maybe beings yeah. can can hit me on that that's like colder than deep space 
Um, so it takes a lot of effort to maintain a qubit in any sort of state that we're able to to read and gather data from it. Now, IBM has actually unleashed a five qubit quantum computer that you can go write code for right now, mm-hmm. and that code will run on their actual quantum computer in the lab. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. It's mind blowing. Um, no, it's awesome that they opened it up uh, to everybody like that. And I think, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. I think IBM actually does have a forty nine qubit uh, quantum computer that, that you know, like they have for them. It's definitely not open to everybody. And then Google has a seventy two qubit. Uh, uh, device that they're working on, but they're having some problems. Uh, I guess there's a problem going forward that the qubits collapse back into regular bits uh-huh. and, you, and you lose the the quantumness of the computer. That's right. So I remember reading about, and I don't remember what the particular property is called, but uh, each qubit will actually have a property property that measures how long the data is available. Right. So after a certain, and I think it's on the order of like 50 microseconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your calculation takes, if your, if your equation rather takes longer than that 50 microseconds, your data may be gone from that qubit by the time you go, go to retrieve it. Right. Um, so these are the kind of complications um, that will inevitably get past, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ought to. Um, but these are the kind of complications that are kind of slowing things down. So when people right. make assumptions about, you know, when quantum computers will be here and this, that, and the other. Uh, it's really hard to say because yeah. it's it's largely new ground. It's a new frontier. Well, it's hard to say, but I will. I think that people are getting ready for it. And we'll discuss like, you know, how it's manifested in the real world in some ways, you know, a little bit later on. But But I think it is sooner rather than later. And what's interesting, you mentioned that quantum computing could actually help with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. I think it's of note. That if you kick it back to our change my view on AI, um, the projections, some of the, you know, like the really uh, optimistic projections for the AI singularity was five to 10 years. Yeah. And I've seen projections for quantum computing, you know, achieving the thresholds to be really useful in about five to 10 years. So you're telling me that right around the time we build an AI that's going to bring us to the singularity quantum computers are going to be ready for them to Dude, just access. snag up and yes. access and use to yeah. do whatever their robot will may steer them to yeah, do. Not, not at all reminiscent of Skynet at all. <laughs> Run for your lives. Okay. Uh, but already we can begin to see how radically quantum computing will, will shift our worldview. Um, for one, like uh, problems of optimization are going to be right in quantum computers like wheelhouse, right? Yes. So if you take like traffic route optimization uh, in a popular area, like th- these machines will be able to crunch data that that your typical computer just just can't. I mean, it would take forever. That's right. Just, I mean, when you're talking about say something as as simple, something we take for granted every day, um, as Google Maps, mm-hmm. um, and we're looking for routes through a city, um, the idea is that a qu- quantum computer could calculate all of those routes at the same time and then use like that Grover's algorithm to pop out the route yeah. that that makes the most sense. So we're mm-hmm. not spending time uh crunching, you know, each each individual route of which there right. there are millions. I mean, when you're taking uh, I could go left here, I could you know, there's ways to obviously weed out the dumb routes. Obviously, uh-huh. I'm not going to turn left 3 times yeah, yeah. in a row, but mm-hmm. um but yeah, we can we can calculate all of these possibilities and then And what's interesting is you could then have that system uh regulate the traffic light. 
That's right. To help, you know, improve the flow to here and improve the flow to there. And maybe you cut down, like, I mean, think about, you know, some of the people like out in LA, like out on the freeway, they spend like two hours a day, three hours a day on the freeway, just commuting to work. And what if we had this crazy all seeing computer that could take all the traffic data <laughs> and say, let's turn these lights on, those lights off, these lights on, and people get home 30 minutes sooner. It's a big deal. That sounds great. Hopefully we've got flying cars by then and yeah, you just might, take it up 5,000 feet, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, that floor would be it nice. forward <laughs> in a straight line. I'll tell you what, what gets really interesting. And in, in this right here, this is a subject that would have just been uh, right in our wheelhouse back there on your mom's porch. And that is the groundbreaking research uh, published by an international team of scientists demonstrates that quantum computers may not be limited by the arrow of time. That's so, right. And yeah. this is truly fascinating. Why don't you take a second, though, before we delve into it um, to explain to the listeners what the arrow of time is? Okay. Well, it's largely believed in physics that time is moving in a certain direction and that direction is forward. So, you know, there is the belief, uh, especially using like relativity and speed, maybe if we were talking about like faster and light travel, that we could, you know, jump forward in time and that would enable us in a sense to age more slowly and go backwards in time. But mm. it's never really like, hey, I'm going to go from, you know, 2018 to 1935. It's mm -hmm. always while the arrow of time is moving forward. It's always pushing forward. And, and physicists largely believe that we can't change that. We can't bend that. We can't ever beat that rule. That's right. It also, uh, in computing, it brings up a very specific uh, piece of evidence. And that is that when we are trying to do, say, physics calculations in reverse and determine where something came from, mm -hmm. the amount of memory and computing power to process the equations mm -hmm. exponentially increases right? Uh, and is way beyond anything our current, uh, our current computers are capable of. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, a research group in May have published a paper that suggests that quantum algorithms do not suffer... Uh, from this same overhead. Right. So, for example, uh, I mentioned meteorology earlier. Let's take that for an example. Um, if you take current weather patterns, we can look at them and, and with pretty good efficiency, determine where that storm is going to go. Really? You're, you're going to go there? You're going to... You're going to tell me the weatherman's always right? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> well, no, but but the failings of the weatherman are are because of the amount of data he has at his disposal. Right. They're not a failure of the models he's using um, to determine where the storm's going to go. So if he has perfect information in, uh, we get pretty perfect information out. Right. Um, the thing that's immensely more difficult is determining where a storm came from, given the current state. Uh, and this goes for all sorts of problems. It's actually called causal asymmetry. So A causes B, but obviously B doesn't cause A in reverse. Uh, here's another good example for you guys. Throw a handful of glitter in the air, and as it's falling, take a picture. Uh, there are a handful of classical algorithms that account for size, shape, weight of the glitter particle, airflow, gravity, etc., and we can reasonably determine where they're going to land. Now, trying to determine where they came from is an entirely different beast. So you're talking about like looking at a picture of glitter spread out on the ground and then trying to determine what position they had reached in the air and then actually ultimately even going back to the hand, right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely right. 
No, that's that's where it really starts to get crazy for me. When you take that, you take the reversing the arrow of time, you know, working backwards with the glitter, and you take that optimization stuff that we were talking about, you smush those two together, and you begin to wonder how close we are to developing a crystal ball and the implications that that may bring. I mean, there's there's a belief in physics. A lot of physicists hold this belief that there is an inherent chaotic streak in nature that's right. that renders the future ultimately unpredictable. This that's the butterfly effect, right? Mm-hmm. That there's there's something in nature that we can't really like put a label on that creates chaos and we and, can get to reasonable accuracy. Yeah. But there's still a factor in here that is unknowable. And and you have to imagine that the same thing is going to happen with these quantum computers. They're not going to be perfect. They're going to be, you know, damn good and they'll only get better. But I don't think they're ever going to be able to perfectly, you know, predict the future. But it does wonder in taking us right up to the edge, right? And in giving us a reasonable picture of a prediction, mm-hmm. how d- does that let us study that chaotic factor? Do, do we get to look at like what the quantum machine predicted and then look at how chaos changed it? And do we get to finally learn about that chaotic factor? Ah, and maybe we even figure out the pieces of order that are presented to us as chaos in much yeah. the same way, you know, we found out about quarks and, and exactly. neutrinos inside of atoms, you know, and we thought atoms were the, the basic structure. So yeah, that brings up a really interesting point. No. And I, and I think, well, obviously some, another implication to consider is just the implications for free will. Like what happens when you live in a world where a machine can tell you the best way to drive home? And what other things is it going to be able to look at? Like massive data sets that we never thought we'd crunch. I'd say and at that say, point, this is the optimal path. In many ways, free will presents itself as a chaos factor, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it does. It does. I wonder if we're going to have, you know, situations where, you know, you do have a state or you do have a government saying that, you know, the machine says that you should live here, you should live thusly. We should build this. We should build that. Other people are saying no, and they're just like cold overruled because the machine said, you know what I mean? That's, and, that's, and that's pretty interesting that's stuff. before we even get into artificial intelligence and stuff. You know what I mean? That's just by itself crunching data. Right. You know? So I saw a video where a woman was talking about quantum computing, and she posited the classic problem of having dinner, dinner guests over and figuring out where to seat them around a table. Mm-hmm. And with a couple guests, you know, this is pretty easy. You go, well, Fred doesn't like Susan and and Susan doesn't like George. We got four people. Let's let's just separate Susan and George. Um as you start getting to like say 10 guests, mm-hmm. I think the number of combinations was 15 billion. Yeah. Or something absurd. So this is a problem that that seems simple on its face. How do I sit 10 guests around a table given a certain criteria, a certain desired criteria? Uh, and classical computing is totally unable to solve this problem with even 10 guests. Right. So a quantum computer theoretically could put all of the combinations of guests in a superposition mm-hmm. and then filter out for the criteria you've selected. Um, so that seems like a kind of trivial thing, right? I mean, dinner guests, who who cares? But I think when you're talking about governments using uh, a quantum computer to socially engineer. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's too far out of reality. Or, or I mean, think uh, the implications on the stock market. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that that's insane. And like, you know, where should I invest this money? And when it's not just like, you know, financial firms 
uh, trying to use that to make money in the stock market is the government going to be looking at if I allocate these resources here and, and this here, what does it do for the deficit in 2025? Mm. And you know what I mean? And like, so now that's having a say in how resources are allocated. And I, how do you disagree with a machine that no, you know what I mean? So like, so when you try to make the case, you're going to have to make the case from like a moral standpoint, da, 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 da. and the other side is going to be able to say, but this is optimal. And that, that changes things. I think. You know, yes, they can say this is optimal, but it's, it's optimal given a criteria, right? Right. So if your criteria is uh, arbitrarily decided or um, not certain, Mm-hmm. then, you know, I don't think we're going to get to that problem. I, I, I'll i probably eat my words in 20 years. Well, <laughs> but but I think very much like I see AI, you know, not necessarily going back down this, this dark path. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in the same way we've used computers to improve our lives, we're probably going to do the same thing with quantum computers, and we're going to temper the problems as they come about. Well... I know I agree, and I and I'm saying I am using a a worst case scenario, but it's to highlight the fact that life fundamentally changes at that point. And you know, you're saying computers have in, improved our lives, yes, but what is going to be the we're all glued to social media on our phones <laughs> in of the, the quantum, quantum computing world? You know I what like I mean? That. So yeah. yeah, I mean that's the question. It's still going to fundamentally change life as we know it. I mean, you know, conversations are going to be had to be had in a different way. Yeah, you know, I, I totally agree. That's a lot of speculation. There are some things with quantum computing, though, that we can tell you for sure. And that is that the U.S. seemingly, by all accounts, are getting our ass kicked when it comes to quantum computing. We do have plenty of black budget agencies That's true. that That's may true. be far and away above what we know. But like you said, what we know is that we are far behind yeah. right now. Uh, this is from Forbes. Uh, China, for instance, has publicly stated its intent to surpass the U.S., on the quantum front over the next decade. It recently invested $10 billion into a new quantum laboratory in Hafei, I'm, I'm just guessing there, east of Shanghai, and in 2016 launched a satellite for use in unhackable quantum communication protocols that were debuted in 2017 to generate the quantum key used in a quantum video call between scientists in China and Austria. I mean, so there you go. You were saying earlier, like, oh, we need to build them first. Well, buddy, <laughs> yeah. we're doing quantum video calls. Well, we're not. Yeah. China's doing quantum video calls already. So, you know, in a large way, this technology is here. Yeah, no, and it's, and it's not just China either. The United Kingdom has outlaid $400 million over five years to a new quantum hub network. The Netherlands is providing $150 million over 10 years to a similar initiative. And the European Union has devoted $1.3 billion over 10 years to the EU flagship quantum program. Other efforts are underway in Canada and Australia. So I'd like to point out that that number is approaching $2 billion. China just, just dropped $10 billion. Yeah, no doubt, and I know money is not necessarily progress, but when you're talking about hiring the best scientists uh, that money goes pretty darn far when it comes to science. I think I think that this is yet another place where China sees the the ability for them to outflank us because we've been kind of lax on quantum computing up to this point, and they are definitely running with it. So the question is, are we going to run with them? And it's a big damn deal because quantum computing is going to render our current methods of encryption obsolete. In fact, hackers are grabbing stuff right now 
right now today in anticipation of decrypting it then when they have the quantum computers functioning. In a sense, we've already been breached. I wouldn't even say in a sense, man. I mean, there have been high-profile data breaches. Uh, You've got Equifax, 143 million people. That's half the U.S. Yahoo had names, email addresses, password security questions, uh, and the answers. Phone numbers leaked. Three billion people. Wow. Uh, eBay had 145 million accounts compromised. Uh, Now, I have to say that some of the impact of these breaches for now, is mitigated by the fact that important personal data like credit card numbers and passwords, that's encrypted. So it's pretty much useless to the hackers. But like you said, Mm -hmm. uh, come a quantum computing shift, that encryption is obsolete. The, the, The quantum computer runs all possibilities at the same time and filters for the right one. It just bubbles to the top. Yeah. yeah. So uh, all of this protected data is essentially behind a lock made out of spaghetti. Yeah. So basically it's, it's like, uh, you know, so you've got valuables in a safe. So the thieves are stealing the safe now in anticipation that somebody's going to cut them a key later. And so we're like, they kind of caught us with our pants down because we weren't expecting them to just steal the whole damn safe. You know what I mean? That's right. Well, I think, I think security researchers and stuff, we, they do expect uh, to have the safe stolen. They didn't expect to have a machine that could cut keys yeah, you know, yeah. be available to, to the thief. That's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I don't know how anyone really foresees that, although we've been talking about quantum computers uh, for nine, 10 years now, yeah. maybe longer. I don't know how far it goes back. Um, but at the forefront Actually, of that you know conversation, I, it, just, it just zipped into my head. Uh, they Quantum computers first emerged. You know, we do a lot of reading for this and uh, quantum computers first emerged in the early 80s. They were okay. theorizing about quantum so, computers. So 30 years. Yeah. Um, I, 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 encryption is always at the forefront of quantum uh, quantum computing discussions. So right. really, I don't know how we didn't foresee this. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do when it when it hits. I mean, you're talking about possibly half the world, yeah. um, you know, at least half of America yeah. that has all kinds of personal information floating out there. I mean, maybe you'll change your passwords in 20 years, hopefully, you know, but maybe <laughs> it only takes 10, maybe it only takes five. Hell, China may be cracking this data right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and in fairness, like you said, black, black budget operations, maybe we are too, you know, <laughs> but it does, it does make you wonder about the vulnerability of state secrets as well. You mm. know I mean? And who knows? You're never going to hear if that gets breached. You know what I mean? Like if That's it's right. not a clear and imminent danger that they have to tell us, if they ripped off the State Department, we will never hear about that until they release the information that they have cracked with the quantum computer. Let me posit this for a second. There may be a cabal of secret billionaires who already have quantum computers that have decrypted every stream of data that exists, and they know what we're doing they know all of our darkest, dirtiest secrets, and 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 maybe they're making Trump dance, you know, pulling the strings because they've decrypted his Tinder account. I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure it's the people who run Costco. <laughs> <laughs> so all this, you know, it's not to say that we are completely, you know, just left in the dust. Uh, there is some, we are starting to wake up here in America. A congressional hearing was held in May where numerous experts told the U.S. to basically, you know, get its shit together. So Lamar Smith, the chair of the House Science and Technology Committee, has proposed the National Quantum Initiative Act, which creates a federal program to guide and encourage quantum computing developments for the next 10 years. 
Uh, it's currently making its way through Congress, and nobody expects it to hit any snags. Like, it's going to just fly through <laughs> And rest assured that we will only use the technology for good, not, say, decrypting Russian data dumps, spying on enemy regimes, deposing world leaders uh, who pose a threat to our numerous goals in the world, or just making Trump dance. No, man, we're, we're Team American. No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. We wouldn't do any of that stuff. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, uh, so uh, our next story is actually a little bit of an update. Way back in episode six, uh, we talked about something called Ghost Gun. Uh, and since then, there has been a huge development that calls for an update. The U.S. State Department has settled its case with Cody Wilson, owner of Defense Distributed, a nonprofit uh, built to, in their words, facilitate emergent gunsmithing technologies. Um, they sell the ghost gunner kit, which is a CNC mill and blueprints that allow a person to make their own AR 15 lower receiver. Um, they apparently have plans to expand this to include a model 1911 as well. Uh, but this settlement means that as of August 1st, 2018 defense distributed can publish the blueprints to its 3d printed gun, the liberator and a trove of other blueprints the nonprofit collected during their five-year legal battle. So, Cody Wilson told Wired Magazine, if code is speech, the constitutional contradictions are evident. So what if this code is a gun? We're doing the encyclopedic work of collecting this data and putting it into the commons, Wilson says. What's about to happen is a Cambrian explosion of the digital content related to firearms. I consider it a truly grand thing, Wilson says. It'll be an irrevocable part of political life that guns are downloadable, and we helped to do that. And given the current climate, I'd say this is exactly how we lose free speech, folks. <laughs> I mean, let's deconstruct it for a second. Um, should I be able to tell you face-to-face -face how to build an AR-15? Uh, can I teach someone else to make a gun? if I know how. Now, can I publish that step-by-step -step instruction manual? Right. The blueprints? Um, computer code is literally just a set of instructions, right? And it's clear why it would be protected under the First Amendment. Uh, just because the computer can read it and put together a gun from it mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's any less speech than if I told you how to put together a gun and right. you put together a gun from it. So... Regardless of whether it's, it's illegal to build a gun, I think most of us can agree that knowing how and sharing that knowledge should not be a crime. I mean, this, this goes back to a, an earlier episode where we talked about, uh, I guess it was episode 21, when California was banning material related to gay conversion therapy. Right, right. And I came down and said, well, yeah. You shouldn't be able to ban the books about gay conversion therapy, ban yeah. the practice of gay conversion therapy if it's, you know, if it's problematic yeah, and, and move on. But the books, it's important that that knowledge remains, not just for historical reasons, but uh, to, to analyze the thought. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to me, thoughts aren't dangerous and, and ideas aren't dangerous until you put them into practice. Right. And, and I think, yeah, once you, once you go at knowledge, you're, you're crossing a line. And I think, I think people know that, but I think it's, it's scary, right? Because now here you go, anybody on earth could conceivably have the plans to a minigun, 
Ooh. you know, or, or something crazy. I mean, we got to imagine that eventually that's the point we're going to reach. Now, now Wilson's gun, the Liberator, I, I heard it described as it's akin to, you know, it's, it's a completely plastic gun. I think it has one metal part, so it can't beat a metal detector. Um, but they described like shooting it is akin to holding a bullet with vice grips and hitting it on the back with a hammer. Like it's, it's, it's not a very effective gun. And he has plans for other guns to be 3d printed, but you know, it, it, those haven't been refined as of yet. So they're not right now. We don't think that they're very effective. So how is he, how is he gathering this information about all these guns? What, but that's, yeah, that's the interesting part. So what this lawsuit was designed to prevent is Meanwhile, since he's been sued by the State Department over the release of the Liberator plans, his nonprofit has been meticulously taking guns apart, and they use this crazy, uh, insane measurement device that can measure things down to like microns and you know all that yes. stuff. And they are measuring, uh, taking disassembling weapons and measuring them, and then you know putting and creating the blueprints, the blueprints themselves, right? And then they want to release them out to the world so that other people can use them for the three D printers. Then you'll have to deal with whether or not your medium is is good enough to hold up to the firing, and, and you know what can you use it for, and all that. Good so stuff. that that kind of adds another layer of of crazy to me because in order to stop this guy, you have to say you can't. There's some things that you just can't measure. There's some there's some numbers you just can't write. It goes back to like the Sony encryption code that well, was not, leaked online. Not, not so much the measuring, it's it's the publishing. That's that's was specifically idea. about the publishing. Right. You can you can write these numbers, you can't publish them. It's it's just odd. It, I was going to say it goes back to the Sony the Sony encryption key that got leaked uh-huh. and they tried to make it a crime. Right. Uh to to publish this number anywhere and everyone in the universe tweeted it for like 20 yeah. years. No, I think that's the key with this case is that I think I understand that people are scared and I understand why, you know, because again, like I said, with the minigun, but people have to realize it's, it's, it's there. If he doesn't do it, somebody else will. I mean, it's out there and I'm sure that there are already people who are already, you know, in anticipation that he may have lost this case had already begun the process and, and the technology exists like the genie is out of the bottle. Right. You guys are frantically trying to cap it. In fact, we saw the nation's three largest gun control advocacy groups uh, were asking a judge to block the plans from being published on August 1st because they don't understand how any of that works <laughs> that I just described. Um, this included the Brady campaign, who, interestingly, they filed for a Freedom of Information Act request into the Trump administration's decision process regarding this case in the hope that it would help them more successfully argue against, you guessed it, freedom of information. So what happened was the State Department had that lawsuit going, and they decided to, they settled the lawsuit. They decided to drop it. They've moved that regulation of guns, like publishing blueprints, uh, you know, letting guns sell overseas. They're moving that to the Commerce Department. And they've also had a rule change that actually makes it more ambiguous whether or not they can crack down on someone for printing uh, gun blueprints. So basically the state department looked at it and they were like, you know what? Things have changed since we started this lawsuit. We're going to wash our hands up. Now the, the gun control groups think that that is the Trump administration basically siding with Cody Wilson and, and, you know, using this reason. They're but, so pro gun. The NRA's yeah. paid him to, to exactly. turn on the gun faucet. Lackeys boy. of the NRA, so they just dropped the lawsuit frivolously. So the Brady campaign was like, hey, 
we want, uh, you know, all this information about what Trump and the admin done, and we're going to use the Freedom of Information Act to get that information because free information is important <laughs> because we have to stop this free information. Now, that's not a one-to-one comparison. That's well, not quite fair. And honestly, close enough for me. <laughs> I'm glad they're doing it. I want to see insight into the Trump's admin decision here. I want to understand how they're operating. That fascinates me. I want to know if they're siding with Cody, um, you know, on some kind of philosophical grounds or if it's on a, you know, a strictly First Amendment reading. I I want to know what's going on here with Mm. these people. Um, I think it's a it's a great thing. I also think it's a great thing um, that for now you can print an AR-15 in your home and and let me explain why i mean like you said it's scary right at the same time we are now more than ever forced with facing the fact that we're not going to get rid of guns yeah. we're not it's it's off the table uh a tiny little cnc machine and a block of aluminum is all you need for an ar15 uh you grab the rest of the parts which are non-traceable and non-serial numbered uh and you put it together we as a society, are going to be forced, the way I see it, if we want to stop gun violence, and hopefully we all do, we're going to be forced to address the factors that actually cause violence. Mm-hmm. Um, for once, you know, if we take all these other options off the table, we can finally look at things like population density. We can finally look at things like stress, like um, community, mm-hmm. like homes without role models. Um, there's a whole host of, of factors that we know good and well since the 60s, since the 70s, maybe even since the 50s. Um, we know these factors exist and we've chosen not to tackle them. Right. So I have this like utopic hope that maybe now people who care about gun violence will finally start approaching the factors that lead to gun violence mm. instead of the tool. I'm picturing a world where everyone has an AR-15 in the closet, mm-hmm. but no one wants to shoot people. And that may be the case. Because why would anyone want to shoot people with an AR-15 down on the planet when they can be a member of the Space, Space Force? Force? Oh, yeah, baby. That's right. President Trump has directed the Joint Chiefs and the military to establish a sixth branch of the military, the Space Space Force. Force. (laughs) Man, I got to tell y'all, this this is likable Trump. It's the flawed messenger, man. It's it's the flawed messenger. You can't can't hate the man because he comes up with things like Space Force. (laughs) God bless this man. The Air Force and the Navy have been hating on the idea of a space branch for years. Mattis, just last year, said he didn't want us to do it. And Trump is like, cool, well, we're doing it. And he just announced it without telling anybody at a press <laughs> conference for the newly formed U.S. Space Council. He literally turned around. He said, "He said we're going to do a Space Force. This is a presidential decree. And he turned around, looked at the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff and was like, hey, get that done. Cool. <laughs> and, and, dude, and, the, and the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, man, he was just, he was like, uh, you betcha. You. you know what I mean? Like, what? That's how policy got done, dude. I love it. I love it. So Congress did not include the Space Force oh. in the 2019 <laughs> defense bill, although they did expand the Air Force space responsibilities. Uh, both the Pentagon and the Air Force have given vague statements saying they need time to look into it. Uh, end of the day, though, 
that rests with Congress. Yeah, no, Congress, you know, so Trump can do that. Trump can say, hey, I need you to go and figure out how to form a sixth branch. But at the end of the day, Congress has to authorize the forming of, of a sixth branch. Here, get out and vote, folks. Yeah, man, get <laughs> out and vote. Uh, you know, as much as we're ready to just laugh about Space Force because it's Trump, it does bring forth to the forefront some issues that have like steadily been stockpiling over the years. Are there X-Wings like For- <laughs> in orbit around the planet? Well, Is the Death Star approaching our solar system? <laughs> my friend, you would be surprised. First off, I would like to point out that right now two nations can put a person into space and neither one of them is us. Wait, who are they then? Uh, it is China and it is Russia. We are, we are actually... To get to the International Space Station, we are hitching a ride with the Russians. Wow. And that, my friend, is Russian collusion. Badoomks. But <laughs> but I'm saying, I mean, that's something to consider. We're we're the guys who landed on the moon. And we don't we don't right now have a reliable way to get to space. Now, let me point out something about the people who do have an ability to get to space, right? In 2007, uh, China shocked the world by shooting a missile into space that then destroyed one of its own satellites. You've and, got to be kidding me. Yeah, no, this blew everyone away because up to that point, nobody had had that ability. Now, the U.S. proved the next year that we had the same ability. In 2008, we went up well, there you and think why shot that's down so one of crazy. ours. Satellites are orbiting at like, I don't know, 20,000 miles exactly. an hour around yeah. the planet. Yeah. And you're launching a missile from the Earth. Like, it's one thing to land on the moon, but to hit a satellite? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about a grain of dust against the moon mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i'm saying and, and what's interesting is when they did that it actually it, it created just the most the giantest debris field you ever saw so we've already got this issue with like space junk oh yeah there's a whole cloud of planet. junk around well the when they blew that uh it looks like the beaches did in uh mad men did you see that uh no, where everyone that they're, they're having a picnic and you know it's back in the 50s or something and they just pull the blanket out and leave all the trash on the beach and the camera pans out and the whole beach is covered with trash, oh, you know, and everyone's like there vacationing and having their little picnics and stuff. <laughs> Absurd. That's what space looks like right now. Yeah. Well, when China blew that satellite, it created a uh, 3000, I think new pieces of debris that are hurtling around the planet at, you know, I don't know however many miles. So something to bear in mind, we live in a world where people have the capability to shoot down each other's satellites. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, we're taking steps to regain our independence, but our military communications, uh, our economy, a whole host of other systems are completely intertwined and dependent on the GPS system to a degree that their destruction would cripple us. That's right. And and if China shoots our GPS system out of the sky, mm-hmm. that's pretty bad news for us. Um, up until recently, that would have bad, been bad news for everyone. Yeah. But China has recently launched their own GPS satellites. As has uh, Russia. Russia has as well. They are going to be blasting our GPS satellites out of the sky, my man. What are we going to do? No, absolutely. And, and No, get this. We're to the point now where really spooky stuff is starting to happen up in space. Wait, spookier than missiles launched at satellites? Yeah, kind of. Uh, this is from a Wired article. In 2014, a piece of presumptive space junk known to the U.S. military as Object uh, 2014-28E began to behave strangely. Now, now we just talked about all that that large debris field up there. Well, we actually have a lot of it cataloged. We, we know do. where it came from. That's a part of that satellite. That's a part of that. You know, 
Well, there's this piece of debris up there, object 2014-28E, and the object, known to be of Russian origin, started to perform complicated maneuvers. What? The object, The object was, in fact, an autonomous spacecraft capable of veering off course and sidling up to other objects. Including, sidling up to other objects? Yeah, including American commercial communication satellites. So here's the thing. Anything that you put into space that can fix a satellite can disable the satellite. Mm. And now, here's this, this Boris and Natasha device <laughs> that we've got up there that's like, that's like creeping up on American satellites. And it's like, no, it's good, buddy. I am, I am space debris. Do not do, worry. Do not mind me. I'm just leaning to have a cigarette. That is, that's insane. No. Can I, you imagine being the guy like, what do you do? You're watching the space debris? Why are you watching? Yeah. It's like the one thing that's happened <laughs> in the 10 years you've been working here, and this thing's like, bloop, bloop. you're like, George, George, get a look at this. Come here. It's, it's, it's moving. And then who who was the guy that figured out it was Russian? Like, oh, yeah. I can't, I can't well, imagine. Well, no, they, they knew that the, the piece of debris was of Russian origin the whole time. They okay. Just, they just thought it they was They didn't junk. realize it was a drone. Yeah. Imagine the shit show that happened that day. When they were like, holy crap, Russians got an autonomous drone that's checking out our satellite. No, and it was, too, because in that Wired article, they actually talked to the dude who was basically, um, he was the the military head of, like, the little space department. I think it's called uh, Second Division Ops or something, and it's part of the Air Force. And he was talking about how, yeah, they have, like, these 19-year-old kids who he says, you know, are highly trained or whatever, watching (laughs) these monitors. And all of a sudden, this this piece of debris that everybody knew was a piece of debris started performing this maneuvers, and and the kids were like, you know, the the little nineteen year old dudes, they were like, uh, uh, oh my god, and they were actually they were calling people at like three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> waking them up, being like, come in here, we might have extraterrestrial, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know was, why that is? It's because we don't have a space force. That man. is exactly why that is. No, but it there really is like an arms race of sorts already happening in space and that is something that that we kind of have to adjust to i know that you know we want space to be neutral don't get me wrong i want space to be a unifying neutral venue for exploration uh exploration i absolutely want that but the problem is all the treaties that we have regarding space are 40 50 years old that's so, right for instance when china fired that that missile up and shot down its own satellite the only treaty, the Treaty of 1967, just straight up does not cover that because nobody had that capability then. Right. And that's that's the Outer outer Space Treaty signed after the Cold War that says uh-huh. that planets are the common heritage of mankind. I like that. Uh, and later, a moon treaty attempted to extend this out to like all celestial bodies, including asteroids. Only 16 countries signed that agreement. Yeah. And none of them have space exploration yeah well i think well a bunch of them don't i mean i think we're a part of it but yeah no there's there's countries like kazakhstan we're part of the moon agreement yeah yeah we're part of the moon agreement i had no idea yeah i'm i'm pretty sure we are Mizo, better check that you can check that one so i it presents us with two options right like if china and russia if russia's putting sneaky bots up there as space debris that can you know take out our satellites all right you take out the gps system and yeah, the banks can't function straight up. They are so they are dependent on the time and the positioning 
given by the GPS satellites and it, it makes ATMs not function. It, wow. It, a whole really? ATMs I would think would be like independent from that kind of thing. No, it actually, that, uh, that wired article will definitely be linked in the show notes. Check it out. It's long, but like once you read what they've tied into the GPS system, oh man, it blows your mind. It, it gets, it gets scary. You know what I mean? So I think it leaves us with two options. We can either push for new updated treaties. Yes, please. Which is, you know, a great idea. Or in the meantime, and maybe even still, because, you know, treaties are not like, you know, ironclad binding things. Definitely not ironclad. We should probably develop a space force. And, and part, you know, China has a space force. Mm. Now, it's, a, it's not its own branch. It's like a sub-branch of their military. But they have a branch that is working on space. And if you think about this, we've talked about earlier in this episode how they're like, we're going to beat you at quantum computing. Well, I think they've kind of got it in the mind that they're going to beat us at space, too. So we have to acknowledge that. This and is if they're just beating like, us at quantum computing in space, what's oh, next? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a whole other dimension. But no, it has echoes of the, the original space race. Right. And, and And to be honest, you know, we Russia beat us up to space first with Sputnik. They beat us with the, the, the dog that they killed and, you know, and the astronauts and everything. But we caught up. And allegedly, if Stanley Kubrick wasn't involved, we landed on the moon, right? Like, like we pulled ahead. So for a second, I want you guys to just ignore the fact that this is all coming out of Trump's mouth, right? Because it, it goes, it goes back to the flawed messenger, right? Trump can be a buffoon. Sometimes buffoons can have good ideas. And I think this is one of those good ideas. And I wonder who out there is is really pushing back against this oh it's it's the air force straight up and and it's funny to me that the air force hates this because 70 years ago the air force was created over the objections of the army and the navy who thought that they could handle the air theater of operations just fine you don't say there, there's talk of actually forming another branch of the military the cyber force and they're they're debating on whether or not to make it a part of the space force and you desperately know, I needed i think we're going to see the same bureaucratic infighting because the navy <laughs> wants the cyber force but man regard think about this in a few years we could have the cyber force and the space, space force. force oh man i'm telling you what a time to be alive bro <laughs> and, and you know speaking of space i mean like i said we got to get real it's not just you know defending immediately around the planet no it's time for us to get back up it there is man most certainly time i you know i said on a show before that i was happy with how we treated space as a country like fiscally when the shuttle missions became redundant and expensive we killed them and I like that private enterprise has been able to get in on the act and help keep pushing the envelope of technology. Right. In fact, last year, I think we signed the U.S. Space Act, which allows U.S. citizens to engage in the commercial exploration and exploitation of mm. space resources. And, you know, that's where things kind of get iffy for me. Like, I picture Elon Musk riding a Tesla rocket around space like <laughs> a cowboy. He's up there like swinging a lasso, roping <laughs> asteroids and plunots, you know, with some kind of magical space minute, thingy. What's a, what's a plunot? <laughs> you don't know about plunots? <laughs> no, I do not know. Well, about Pluto's plunot. not a planet, right? Oh, get out of here, it's man. A plunot. <laughs> no, man. Come on, dude. <laughs> Probably lots of gold in them hills. <laughs> I, I don't know. But no, seriously, think about all of the, all of the things, all of the minerals, all of the, the, the metals that, yeah. that could be hiding on Mars. 
And and we've kind of opened up in America, we've opened up space travel to private industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very much kind of backing away from our own government space program, as you said. Right. Um, it's just it's just scary to me. Can Elon Musk go up here and, and drill uh, drill for oil on Mars, you know, assuming there's oil on Mars. Can he go tap the water reserves if we do find them and, and sell them to Aquafina? I don't know. Yeah, no. That's I, a weird place to be. I definitely know what you mean. And anybody who's watched a, a fair share of science fiction knows that, you know, like you've always got the image of the corporations running space and everything. I think you could see something really interesting. I think it almost takes us back to like the time of like piracy and stuff. Mm. I, I think you could see countries issuing like letters of mark like they used to to like merchant ships back in the day that say okay well here's this you go out into space whatever you find we own but you know you're going to get a cut of the profits and i'm hoping that that's all it ever turns into no i i hope that elon musk doesn't get to go out into space and start claiming things (laughs) as belonging to tesla this is this is tesla 659 because i have yet to see a sign science fiction vision of that, that that ends well or that i'm happy with you know right. what I mean? this is kind of the reason i'm i'm against one world government i feel like if we can't fix what's wrong in our country we shouldn't be expanding government to global and if we can't fix what's <laughs> going on in the world we definitely shouldn't be expanding into space but the truth is we already are yeah and i mean and, and we got to i mean it's it's there's no question that eventually we are going to end up in space and so if that's the case, and as much as I like Tesla's development, SpaceX, all that good mm-hmm. stuff, as much as I like that, we, we can't just keep riding everybody else's rockets, man. I mean, I was cool with pausing the shuttle for a little bit, but, you know, it's, it's time to start working on something new because everyone else sure as hell is. And, and we are quite literally riding, riding other people's rockets, right? I yes. mean, if we want to send people to space, we've got to hitch a ride that is where we With are the at Chinese space program. right now. Now, the EU, India, China, Japan, Russia, and Israel all have unmanned missions to the moon planned. Some depart late this year, wow. 2018. China, India, and a joint program between the EU and Russia are launching orbiters and rovers at Mars. Wow. Dude, that was our domain. Like like the rovers on Mars, like going, you know, we've had the European Space Agency, we've had like, you know, these other you know, like I said, Russia has a space program, sure. You know, but but we used to dominate space. And I, I'm not trying to get, like, nationalistic, but it, it is the next frontier. Like, we need to be at the forefront of space exploration and also, you know, take America out. As a planet, we need to start expanding into the stars. That's I right. Mean, I think eventually, uh, in a long enough timeline, uh, the Earth dissipates into an eventual heat death. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not that's not very close. Uh, but even closer than that, perhaps global warming forces us out yeah. way sooner than we expect it to. Population. You know, we're we're you know? seeing yeah. effects. Scientists are saying uh, wildfires and stuff are, are raging around the world right now because mm-hmm. of global warming. So, uh, you know, any of our models could be incorrect. It could give us more or less time. But eventually, we're gone, man. We got to right. be. Well, there's there is a wonderful little speech um, that was delivered by Dr. Robert Zubrin during a Q&A on Mars in 2015 that sums this up better than you or I could ever even hope to. This man's enthusiasm for space travel and Mars in particular is amazing, and we wanted to share it uh, with you guys today. So take a listen to this. When you originally started talking, you mentioned that you're going to address the why of going to Mars, but you never actually mentioned anything about that in your talk. All right. Could you go over that? Sure. Okay. 
as I see it, there's three reasons why Mars should be the goal of our space program. And in short, it's because Mars is where the science is, it's where the challenge is, and it's where the future is. It's where the science is because Mars, okay, it was once a warm and wet planet. It had liquid water on its surface for more than a billion years, which is about five times as long as it took life to appear on Earth after there was liquid water here. So if the theory is correct, that life is a natural development from chemistry, or if you have liquid water, various elements in sufficient time, life should have appeared on Mars, even if it subsequently went extinct. And if we can go to Mars and find fossils of past life, we'll have proven the development of life is a general phenomenon in the universe. Okay? Or, alternatively, if we go to Mars and find plenty of evidence of past bodies of water, but no evidence of fossils of development of life, that could say that the development of life from chemistry is not sort of a, a natural process that occurs with high probability, but includes elements of free chance that we could be alone in the universe. Furthermore, if we can go to Mars and drill, because there's liquid water underground on Mars, reach the groundwater, there could be life there now. And if we can get hold of that and look at it and examine its biological structure and biochemistry, we could find out if life as it exists on Mars is the same as Earth life, because all Earth life at the biochemical level is the same. We all use the same amino acids, the same method of replicating and transmitting information, RNA, DNA, all that. Is that what life has to be, or could life be very different from that? Are we what life is, or are we just one example drawn from a much vaster tapestry of possibilities? This is real science. This is fundamental questions that thinking men and women have wondered about for thousands of years, the role of life in the universe. This is very different from going to the moon and dating craters in order to produce enough data to get a credible paper to publish in the Journal of Geophysical Research and get tenure. Okay, the, the, um, okay. Um, this is, this is, you know, hypothesis-driven critical science. This is the real thing. Second, the challenge, okay? You know, I think societies are like individuals. We grow and we challenge ourselves. We stagnate when we do not. Humans to Mars program would be a tremendously bracing challenge for our society to be tremendously productive, particularly among youth, okay? Humans to Mars program would say to every kid in school today, learn your science and you could be an explorer of a new world. We get millions of scientists, engineers, inventors, technological entrepreneurs, doctors, medical researchers out of that. And that the intellectual capital from that would enormously benefit us. It would dwarf the cost of the program. And then finally, it's the future. Mars is the closest planet that has on it all the resources needed to support life and therefore civilization. If we do what we can do in our time, establish that little Plymouth Rock settlement on Mars, then 500 years from now, there'll be new branches of human civilization on Mars, and I believe throughout nearby interstellar space. But, you know, look, I ask any American, what happened in 1492? They'll tell me, well, Columbus sailed in 1492, and that is correct, he did. But that's not the only thing that happened in 1492. In 1492, England and France signed a peace treaty. In 1492, the Borgias took over the papacy. In 1492, Lorenzo de' Medici, the richest man in the world, died. Okay, a lot of things happened. If there had been newspapers in 1492, which they weren't, but if there had, those would have been the headlines, not this Italian weaver's son taking a bunch of ships and sailing off to nowhere. Okay, but, but Columbus is what we remember, not the Borgias taking over the papacy. Okay, well, 500 years from now, People are not going to remember which faction came out on top in Iraq or Syria or whatever, and the, 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 the and who was in and who was out, and and you know. But they will remember what we do to make their civilization possible. Okay, 
So this is the most important thing we could do. The most important thing we could do in this time. And if you have it in your power to do something great and important and wonderful, then you should. Man, I got to tell you, dude, listen to that guy talk. I wish that I cared about anything as much as that man cares about going to Mars. And he's, he's absolutely right. Dude. Yeah. It's kind of brilliant, man. When he's talking about, um, you know, science and, and exploration and, and the spirit of man, I mean, you can't yeah. help, but just get behind him. Um, although I, there's, there's a dark side to that too. And that's, you know, that's Elon Musk, uh, sure. uh, tapping Mars for water and selling yeah. it to Aquafina. We'll have to do it right. But what, what he said in particular that struck a chord with me, because I, when I was a kid, you know, I actually grew up in Florida, you know, NASA's like right there. And I wanted to be an astronaut. And I remember there was a movie that came out in the late nineties at uh, Gary Sinise. And I can't remember if it was red planet or mission to Mars, whatever it was, but they were going to Mars and it was, uh, it was set in like 2022, 2025. And they were roughly in the movie about 40 years old. And I realized that that was my age group. And I was like, <laughs> you know, I was like, man, I could, I could, I could be the guy. I could be the guy on Mars. So when he starts talking about, you know, a mission to Mars shows kids that, you know, you can get into the sciences and you can be this explorer. You can be doing groundbreaking work. Right. On, imagine on, the astronauts. Imagine mm -hmm. the medical staff. Imagine all of the technological achievements that, and we, that we can tell our children they're able to make. And we saw it with the original space race. You know, we, we laugh about Tang and stuff and Velcro, but like uh, you get so many technological innovations that come out of a massive program like that. No, it's, it's good stuff. You know, astronaut ice cream. We all love that. <laughs> Everyone loves astronaut ice cream and the accompanying IMAX movie because you're probably at a museum. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's interesting. He said uh, in that, that speech, he was saying something about, you know, if we can find that water that's on Mars, we know it's underground. Well, that's right. We're not even there enough, yet. Yeah. Uh, it was recently announced that the first true body of water may have been discovered on Mars. This is from BBC. Uh, researchers have found evidence of an existing body of liquid water on Mars. What they believe to be a lake sits under the planet's south polar ice cap and is about 20 kilometers. That's 12 miles for you English uh, putzes across. They, they do kilometers in England. American putzes, yeah, yeah, it's American of which putzes. I am obviously one of. Uh, the discovery was made using MARSIS, that's a radar instrument on board the European Space Agency's ESA, Mars Express Orbiter. It's probably not a very large lake, uh, about 20 kilometers across, right? Uh, said Professor Roberto Orosi. Yeah, let's go with that. From the National like Institute it. for Astrophysics. Uh, who led the study, Marsis wasn't able to determine how thick the layer of water might be, but the research team estimate that it is a minimum of one meter thick. This really qualifies as a body of water, a lake, not some kind of meltwater filling some space between rock and ice, as happens in certain glaciers on Earth. There is, there is an excellent chance that within that body of water, there, there could be life. Or there could be the the indications of life, and and you know, like the professor said, um, if if we find that life, we begin to unlock clues about the nature of life, and are we unique, or are other things based like us, or are we the way we are because of random chance? And and it, it almost brings me back to the beginning of the episode where we were talking about quantum computing and it's scooting us up close to being able to study that chaos factor like we've never been able to study it before. And that's what science is, man. It's 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 pushing us forward. It is the 
Science can be. It can obviously be used for ill purposes. It can obviously be twisted like anything else can. But science can be one of the most like noble aspects of like what humanity does, man. It really can. Yeah, you know what else is probably under that lake? What's that? Six billion barrels of oil, baby. Here we come. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today. So let's kick it to our professor and fact checker extraordinaire, Old Beanzo. What do you got, buddy? Producer's log. Stardate 11783.221. Sense and theory have touched on a subject near and dear to my heart, but yet again display a tenuous grasp of the facts. I can't help but wonder if this show will ever have its Rikers beard, or if I've signed up to the Kobayashi Maru of podcasts. Nevertheless, it's my duty to give this show some semblance of credibility. So set the phasers to truth. Theory. Now that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Aw, who am I kidding? Theory's commitment to mangling facts is a stuff of legends. From the furthest reaches of the Delta Quadrant to Omicron Percy I-8, stories of his blunders travel like leaves on the wind. This week, it's as if he decided to theme his mistakes. He misnamed the 2nd Space Operations Squadron called a Mitutoyo height gauge a gun measuring thing and called Dr. Robert Zerbin, a man whose speech he insisted be included in the show, the professor. Theory is as reliable and trustworthy with names as the crew of the Raza. And that brings us to sense. He usually attacks the truth like an ill-advised attempt at Mustafarian high ground. But who knows? Maybe he scienced the shit out of this episode. Perhaps it is I who have underestimated his power. Ha <laughs> ha nope. There are 3,628,800 ways to arrange 10 people at a 10-seat table. I would hope that if since we're going to pull a number out of his ass for this episode, he would have said 42. But then again, I would hope I worked with decent podcast hosts. Of course, it doesn't end there. Pluto is a planetoid, and actually none of the nations that have sent manned missions into space are signees of the Moon Treaty. But I'm sure the way he kept saying admin instead of administration will win us points with all the elite hacksaws. I wish there were a way for all my buddies out there to know what sitting through the raw audio of these episodes was like. But in the producer's chair, no one can hear you scream. I've heard things you people wouldn't believe. Moments lost to the cutting room floor, like tears in the rain. It makes me wonder what sort of universe we live in that allows shows like Dark Matter, Stargate Universe, and Firefly to be canceled while these scruffy nerf herders are running strong. I'm keenly aware of what Master Yoda said. Would call me Darth Beans and throw me down a shaft. This show is absolutely terrible. Computer and log. Would you like to know more? No, no, I, I don't think we need to know more. Beans, my God, you nerd. Man. Yeah, Beans is all right. I liked the references and all the sci-fi stuff. It was a science episode after all. I mean, remember what my man Captain Picard said uh, in, in Empire Strikes Back? He said, Ooh, look what you made me do. Look what you made me do. 
Look what you just made me do. Look what you just made me do. Theory, are, are you trying to force Chuck? Would you like to know more? This is world-class producer and fact-checker extraordinaire Beanzo of the Sense and Theory podcast. I want to thank you all for suffering through each show to hear the righteous takedowns I drop on the fellas. Please go like and review us on iTunes. It'll mean a lot to the guys, but more importantly, it'll help keep your old buddy Beanzo on the air. There's links to all our social media in the description, and feel free and tell the fellas how wrong they were at Sense and Theory Podcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week to hear Sense and Theory get all up in they feels when I burn all their hard work down again. Beanzo out.